the Making Sense of Life podcast number 45. According to J.K. Rowling, life is difficult and complicated and beyond anyone's total control. The humility to know that will enable you to survive its vicissitudes. The Making Sense of Life podcast will not only empower you to navigate through a fast-changing world, but also to grow in body, mind and spirit. Inward change precedes outer transformation. As the ancient Greek author Plutarch once said, what we achieve inwardly will change outer reality. This podcast is sponsored by Logos Medical Legal. Sunil also works privately with senior leaders. Go to drsunil.com forward slash corporate to find out more. Hello and welcome again to the Making Sense of Life podcast with me, Sunil Raheja. We're carrying on our conversation uh, with Andy Parnan on his book, Lasting Happiness, In Search of Deeper Meaning and Fulfillment. What makes you happy? What kind of things really, as it were, give you a buzz and kick out of life? Well, our society looks at that in so many different ways. And with, with Andy here, it's great to have you here, Andy. Thank you. We're continuing to explore that and explore this really important and vital subject. Our society, as we've been saying, is obsessed with happiness and seems to know the answers. And yet the statistics, as well as personal experience, bear out that so much of the things that we think make us happy don't, as it were, provide that lasting happiness and fulfillment that we're looking for. But the words we use for happiness can be quite confusing, particularly around the words of happiness, wellness, health, well-being. Andy, just as, we, as we carry on our conversation, unpack that for us and uh, help us to, to understand why, why we get so confused on these things. Well, these words are bandied around a lot these days, aren't they? So, you know, eight ways to be happy. Uh, but the more, uh, you know, in popular society, but the, when you get into more medical, technical, the NHS, the medical services, they don't really go for that word happiness. It's a bit kind of fluffy and popular. So they tend to use things like words like health, well-being and so on. And uh, that's very interesting, health and well-being boards and the NHS and so on. But the words, as is often the case, are used without necessarily people quite understanding what they mean. Here's my take on it. And again, I'm mentioning things from the book here. The World Health Organization, WHO, 70 years ago, came up with the definition of health that has stood the... uh, Stand. Uh, what's the word? The test of time. Test, test of time, exactly. Um, and it, it it's very simple. It says this: um, health is a state of complete physical, mental, and social well-being, and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity. And actually, that short statement says a lot. One of the things it tells us, at least from their point of view, and I and I agree with it, is that when we talk about health, we're not just talking about something that is defined by what it isn't or hasn't got in other words in this case it's the state of non-disease in other words i've i've i'm ill and then i become cured of it 
I'm now healthy. Why? Because I don't have any disease. Well, that's one way of looking at it. But it's a very sort of negative kind of way of looking at it. Absence of disease is health. But yeah, there's much more to it than that. Exactly. It's a bit like saying the war is finished, so now we've got peace. So peace is just absence of war? Well, no, peace is something in itself. And that's, I think, very helpful um, in that health, as defined like that, is something positive it's something real it has tangible reality not because of the negatives but because of what it is and i think that's really helpful so that's perhaps the first thing to say about health second thing to say about it is that nonetheless i would say that health uh is a means and not an end you say well isn't it good to be healthy well of course it is But when you think about it, health, another word for health, you could use the word fitness, something that uh, equips you, enables you to dot, dot, dot. To what? That's the question. So if I'm healthy uh, as a a, a straightforward person or, or maybe an athlete, an athlete needs to be healthy in order to run a race. And so I, I'm not running races, but I'm living life. So my health, whether it's physical health or mental health, is an agency. It's, it's a means to an end. And I think often the confusion comes when we so focus and it's very, you know, go down. I go to the gym quite regularly and I see these amazing bodies and fitness. And it's almost as if in some cases, and I think that's symbolic of our society that the means in some ways has become the end to to be attractive to have health and wealth and all the material trappings that go at is an end in itself and i think it illustrates the point that actually we're talking about a means as an instrument as a tool if you like so there's got to be some kind of purpose to it is what you're saying and we, we we get so obsessed with being fit and healthy or finding pleasure in life but we don't actually know what the purpose of what, of what we're doing for so we're not we're living subhuman in many ways in that sense well all these things are good it's, there's nothing wrong with being healthy nothing wrong with having physical well-being and mental well-being nothing wrong with having enough money to live on etc nothing wrong with having positive emotions of course if we don't have those it's quite a miserable life isn't it but in a sense those are the the starting point not the ending point and so if we want to be it's interesting that the national health service is not the national well-being service it's the national health because it, doctors and nurses and all the rest of them they help us to get to a state or at least that's the intention so that we can live our lives and the question then arises so what are we talking about when we say living our lives that's where that word well-being comes in so what do we mean by well-being then Exactly. That's the point. You've yeah. you've took the words right out of my mouth. <laughs> yeah. And so that that, you know, health and well-being, they are not the same thing. As somebody put it this way, says that uh, health is too dependent on fate, fortune and luck. Mm. Health and wealth are mere instrumental goods. So so it begs the question, doesn't it? So if we, if that's the case, what is the end that health and wealth and so on are the means towards? And here's the interesting thing. In technical, scholarly, academic circles, the word well-being is actually quite a controversial word because it can mean so many different things. And, and 
more significantly, it's really difficult to define what we mean by well-being. Why? I think the answer to that is very simple. It's because well-being, unlike health or something, is much wider. It's much deeper. It's talking about not just my well-being, but your well-being, my my society's well-being, the world's well-being, humanity. Well, actually, that includes loads of different things, not just the physical. So does, are you saying that I can have well-being and not be healthy? Well... <laughs> That's interesting. If you look at the statistics, that is exactly what the, the research shows. I mean, of course, it, we want health and we want to be well, and that's a good thing. But it, it turns out that when they then the research into people who've actually got quite severe disabilities or illnesses and so on, they, they did one on uh, people who, who, had, who were quadriplegic, so they couldn't move any of their arms. And they measured their subjective well-being over a period of time and found that after the initial shock, after a period of time, their levels of subjective well-being um, became very similar to those of other people. And, and just another thing. That's quite a staggering thing to say. So somebody who has lost all their limbs, the research has shown that their level of happiness with themselves and with life if you like is that is that fair to say with their well-being is comparable to that of people who are not disabled in the same way yeah well it's not just physical it's emotional as well and so well we know this from from a life experience that people who experience bereavement um loss of a loved one obviously their their happiness takes a dive but again when people come back to them and they engage with them, they ask them how they're doing, over a period of time, and it may take quite a, <laughs> quite a long time, generally speaking, their levels of subjective well-being begin to come back normally, back to the similar level to what they were before. So we, we're adaptable. Yeah. And th this is really important because I think as a society and culture, we basically want quick fixes. We want our happy pill. I think you, you talk about in, in, in the book um, an example of um, somebody said if you, it could give you something just to make you happy, like I think happy juice was, was the phrase that's used, would you want it? But just happiness, and I think that's what we tend to think about, is just give me a quick fix and sort it out, rather than seeing my life in its full context in as a holistic body, mind, spirit a way as possible, that I do go through periods of um, frustration, even despair, disappointment, depression, but that actually that can be all part of the journey to my well-being. Exactly, and I think that illustrates the point very well, the more, the general point, the wider point, the book that the book is trying to say. Remember that diagram? Yes. Stuff on the left. Yes, remind us of the diagram, because if you haven't listened to the earlier podcast, just remind us about that. Well, it's just very simple, really, but I think very profound. If you imagine a circle with a vertical line going down the middle, so you've got your left and right sides. So on the left, those... Uh, summary words, if you like, that I think our society so often emphasizes health, wealth and happiness, meaning pleasure, very much the the material side. And I'm going to add another dimension to that right now by saying that in a sense, those things are instrumental means to an end. So I've just hinted at that when I've talked about health. Similarly with wealth, it enables if I've got adequate health, more than adequate health and wealth and pleasant things in my life, obviously that's going to help. But it, it, it helps me 
straightforward and it gives me the tools, if you like, whether it's my body or other things, to enable me to do things. But the question that then gets raised is, so what are those things that enables me to be? How do I live life satisfactorily? And that edges us over to the other side where I've got another three words, relationships, meaning and fulfillment, which are, if you like, the ends, whereas the others are the means, the end, or some means for an end. And, you know, there's loads of things that perhaps we can say another time. But um, we get confused, the means and the ends. So we often get diverted onto the material, the physical means, when really what we're looking for is the ends. And uh, here's, the, here's the final point on that, that indeed if we are finding fulfillment in those things that I'm calling the ends, relationships and meaning in life, we're more likely to find fulfillment fulfillment than if we just focus on the other things yes okay yeah so it's relationships meaning and fulfillment is what we're really aiming for even though we, we, we may not realize it that's what will bring lasting happiness and well-being okay let's focus on relationships um because relationships are so key and fundamental um there is a, there is a ted talk on 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 the uh, on drsignal.com about what is a one essential ingredient for lifelong health and happiness. What is the thing that trumps everything if you want to have a long life and be happy, if you want to have well-being? And this study by, um, I think, Robert Waldinger, a psychiatrist who's now in his 70s or 80s. Um, tell us about that study and what it is, because it's, it's relationships. But, but it'd be good to unpack that. Well, it's very, very interesting. I mean, there's many studies that um, point to the significance of relationships for health and well-being. But one in particular stands out, and it's it's one called the Grant Study. In fact, it's two studies. They've been going for 80 years in the States. So this guy, Robert Waltinger, is just leading it at the moment. But he's inherited it from others before him. So it started before the Second World War. And it was looking at two kinds of people, um, the, the Grant study looked at college graduates, men, and the Gleck study looked at less advantaged people, but they were in parallel. So they've been looking at the factors right from cradle to the grave kind of thing. Uh, what is it that helps them to flourish, to be healthy, to be happy? So they look at, looked at health, um, career, retirement, relationships, and so on. And Waldinger in this TED uh, talk, he says that there are three key conditions or rather conclusions that they found and they all connect with relationships. Firstly, in both studies, men who said they were closer to their family, friends or community, they tended to be happier and healthier, etc. That the quality of those relationships had an impact on their well-being. And even that men, uh, this finding, that men whose marriages had remained intact until age 50 actually performed better on memory tests later uh, in life than others. And so it's all pointing in the same direction. One of the previous, or the previous director of the study, a man called George Valent, he says this, warmth of relationships throughout life have the greatest positive, positive impact on life satisfaction. Well, you can't put it more straightforwardly than, than that, can you? So having good, healthy relationships is more positive for your for your health than giving up smoking, eating healthily, being fit and being fit. It, it, it trumps practically everything. Well, I think it's very interesting and it perhaps doesn't always come out in the in the media that there are issues and the ones that hit us or that we notice most immediately are issues of 
of physical health, aren't they? And then perhaps mental health after that. But it's <laughs> it's funny when when the NHS launches a health drive, what kinds of things do they focus on? They focus on well, physical health primarily. Yeah, things like smoking, obesity, eating, and exercise, and so on, which physical. Uh, things. So those are the obvious things, and they are issues in their own right. You know, Steve, Simon Stevens, um, the head of the NHS in England, he says that obesity is be- is now the new smoking, and so these are big issues. But for me, they also point more deeply. Why is it that we are behaving these ways? Well, there are reasons, and there are emotional and existential reasons underlying them so we're overeating and becoming obese because maybe we're not finding fulfillment in relationships and not any meaning in life that's that's the real reasons why we're doing it they're, they're the underlying cause well i think that everything points in that direction so so again um physical material issues for better or worse are very important and they're the ones that we bump into most and they're the ones that take the most um attention but it's like meaning in any case, if not relationships, because they are engaging at the more implicit, not so in your face evident level, but turn out to be more significant long term, they are often the causes mm. of happiness, unhappiness, and so on. Yeah, so we're really looking in the wrong place um, f- for, the, for the deeper issues. On page 63, you've got a quote by somebody called uh, Jean Varnier who talks about this whole importance of relationships and, and friendship. Do you want to just, just, just read that out to us and, and just give us your, your thoughts and reflections on that? Well, Jean Varnier is uh, a man who started communities in France 50 years ago for people with disabilities, quite severe ones. And it was so successful, called L'Arche, uh, meaning the Ark. And over these many years now has spread over many, many countries. And he's just, or they just produced a film uh, on his work, Summer in the Forest. And in it... Sorry, what's it it called? It's called Summer in the Forest. And in it, he sums up his perspective. He says this, what is it to be a human being? Is it power? Well, if it's power, then we'd end up killing each other. But you see, the wise and powerful lead us into ideologies, whereas the weak, well, they're in the dirt. They're not seeking power, they're seeking friendship. And it's a message for all of us, it's about all of us. So the the point being made there really is that fundamentally we're made for relationship and friendship and that's where we will find our our meaning, not not in power um, and not necessarily, again, in in those other things that we keep chasing after um, in terms of uh, money and and happiness and, and health. And again, it's not saying that they're bad things, but because we've, put it, as it were, invested so much into that, that that's why we're we're going adrift. Mm. Well, I, I I think I mentioned the last talk we had. This man Ed Diener, he's one of these top researchers in these things. Says of all the people, the happy people I've studied, all of them, all of them, without exception, have a network of of healthy and rich relations. You don't have to have many. You only need to have one or two. But all the research points in the same direction. If you want to be happy, then the number one thing is um, to have some healthy relationships. Okay, let's move on. So we talk about relationships. Now let's get about something, again, that's just as, that's much harder to grasp because we can, we can understand relationships. We can understand what it means to have healthy, meaningful relationships. But how about meaning? The word meaning itself. Um yeah, what does meaning mean? 
Yeah, exactly. Well, that's the question that I um, put to people uh, in the happiness course um, when we get to that stage. And it's a bit of a tricky question, isn't it? What do I mean by meaning? And I usually get lots of blank looks. So to illustrate the point, well, in, in the book, I then go on to say, well, here's my working definition of it. Meaning is the implicit intention or representation lying behind the explicit entity be that a word gesture action or something more profound well what is that the key word in there uh, or the phrase in that is the implicit lying behind the explicit in other words uh, if uh, we're trying to discover a meaning of anything whether it's a word a gesture or an object even then it is in your face, isn't it? It is what it is. The the word comes at you or you're looking at the object. But it may, and here's the point, the meaning of it may be different to different people. Let me give you a few examples of that because this all sounds a bit abstract. Mm, um, so uh, I lived in the Middle East for a number of years and um, traveled quite a lot and had some very interesting experiences, met some very wonderful people. One of the people that I met was somebody who was from Lebanon, an Arabic-speaking country. And uh, I remember when we first had chats, he, he, I would ask him a question like, you know, are you catching the bus tonight or something? And the response I got was a tart. And he tilted back his head as well. And I thought, wow. What have I said? That seemed because in our culture that means you're irritated. You're, you're offended, yeah. Yeah. What you idiot? What are you talking about? Kind of thing. And and so I only discovered later that actually what he meant by his tut and tilting head backwards was um, no. It just simply meant the word no. Are you catching the bus tonight? No. Simple as that. Another example is that uh, we used to, in the work that we were doing, used to have groups of young people from the West coming and do things. And there was lots of banter and um, laughter and, you know, kind of nudging. And between the genders, lots of touching appropriately you know but lots of laughter now in our culture that's what you do as a young person but in the middle eastern culture it's actually not acceptable for men and women to touch each other even sometimes to be in the same room together talking to each other and so uh, it's the same activities just one final example um not just in that culture but in any culture if you say the word father to someone you're talking about somebody's dad um that will convey different things to different people. So somebody who knew their dad, loved their dad, very much loved by him, had very positive experiences. When they hear the word dad or father, it's just some letters thrown together, three or six. But it will convey something very different than um, someone who never knew their dad, experienced abuse to his hands or whatever. And uh, the, the the thing, whether it's a gesture or a word or anything, may be the same, but the meaning of it, the implicit, the intention, the, the reason underlying it, what is conveyed by that is very, very different. So, yeah, so there's, there's a lot of depth behind, behind the words, and that's why words can be so powerful. Um, you talk about their well. If we, if we think about meaning, we, we, we've touched on Viktor Frankl and being in the concentration camp in Nazi Germany and his realisation that although he was being 
physically abused and tortured that there was a part of him that no one could touch unless he gave him permission and he created meaning in his life by creating an oasis in his mind whereby he thought about the lectures that he would give the things he was learning he was finding meaning in that that was very separate from the horrible circumstances that he was in and that led to the founding of logotherapy which is all about um having a higher purpose for your life having a meaning and then finding other people who you can join in with that meaning and then seeing any suffering that comes as part of the journey for that greater meaning so it, it gives you the courage and the confidence to to persevere on um but there's more, been some more recent research by somebody called Baumaster. Just fill, fill us in, in, in on that, expand on that for us. Yeah, absolutely. Just on Viktor Frankl, one of my favourite um, quotes from him is where he says, those who have a why, W-H-Y, why to live, can bear with almost any how. Those who have a why to live can bear with almost any how. And he's speaking from the experience of three years in Auschwitz concentration camp. Wow. So he is qualified to say something like that. But I think that summarizes a lot of what, you know, we're trying to get at here. This um, this study, a uh, man called uh, Roy Baumeister, psychologist, uh, just a few years ago, he investigated the similarities and differences between what he called the happy life, a little bit like Sullivan's pleasant life, and on the one hand, on the other hand, what he called the meaningful life, so very similar to what Sullivan talks about. And they talked to people right across the nation, and they found that they could, on the basis of what people said to them, distinguish between one and the other. So they came up with what they called the happy life, and on the one hand, and that was defining happiness in these terms, more about the present moment and getting what you want. Whereas uh, a meaningful life, he said, actually could be not very pleasant. Mm. Again, parenting, uh, parenting can be very pleasant, but there are parts of being a parent that are not very pleasant. I think we all know that. We, 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 for those of us who are parents, yes, very much so. Anyone who's had kids will know exactly what that means, that the actual experiencing parenting another human being or several of them is can be very very painful, very uh, challenging and difficult, not happy in the sense that we often understand it. And yet, is it meaningful? Of course, it's profoundly meaningful, perhaps more meaningful than almost anything we know. And so uh, he went on to describe, he and his colleagues, about meaning. It's about very much related to doing things for others. So the emphasis is not on me. So the happy life, as he's defining, is very much getting what I want. And we're made that way. You know, we need, we have needs, physical needs and material needs, especially. But that's only one dimension. And then he went on to describe that meaning is characterized by giving and focuses on the longer, deeper picture. And he ends up saying this. Uh, he talks about the highly meaningful but unhappy life, which is... Uh, very different to the happy but not necessarily meaningful life. And his conclusion is this, like it's very stark. He says, like animals, we strive for happiness, what we get, so we're instinctual beings. But, he says, meaning is, is a human, is a uni uniquely human characteristic. 
whereby we seek or quest for meaning that is to do with what we give. And he puts it in very stark terms and, and perhaps a little bit controversially making the distinction, but I think it it just re-emphasizes the same thing over and over again, that on the left we've got the instrumental things that make me happy, often material, but over on the right there, things that actually demand more of us and aren't necessarily pleasant in that same sense. Or pleasant in the moment or pleasant in the short term. Exactly, and, and not necessarily, actually involves sacrifice. So a, 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 a relationship that lasts a lifetime, does that demand things of me? Of course it does. It, does it involve sacrifice and giving of myself? Of course it does. That's the whole definition. And similarly with meaning, that we only get meaning in life by being willing to give rather than to be consumers who take. And I suppose... That- by doing that, by giving, that means I have to change. I have to transform. I can't stay as I am, whereas the happiness is, is about I just want to stay as, as I am and get what I want, as, as it were, as, as being that consumer. Yeah, very much so. Consumers, what do they do? They consume, don't they? They take in, and it's good to take in, and if we get on to some brain science, we may even think that through a bit more deeply, that part of life and survival, in fact, is making sure I do have something, very focused. But that is not the end. That's the means in in order that I can then, because we're very profoundly social beings. Okay, so bringing this to land, how can you summarise this for us and perhaps with some practical takeaways that, that we can, as it were, implement in, in, in our own lives? Wow. Well, uh, I think perhaps one takeaway is that all that glistens is not gold <laughs> and that that which appears uh, attractive and um, pleasant to us is indeed that. And there are things that we need to have and to receive and to take. Health, wealth and happiness are perhaps some very good examples of that. And they summarize what we're talking about it. But as I said before, they are not simply ends in themselves. And if they become ends in in themselves, then we can often end up unhealthy and unhappy because those are the focus of our lives. Uh, I did an interview with um, somebody called um, a, a book called "Dealing with Disappointment" with the order uh, with the author John Hindley, and he talks about these things then become idle idols for us. They they take a place that they should never have taken, and that's why they then, as it were, begin to destroy us uh, and have such negative consequences. Yes, and I, I think that's the the it's, it's a bit like addiction, isn't it? If my focus is only what I can take in, usually material stuff, it starts to uh, some kind of dynamic starts to set up that I need more of it. It's it's what happens in addiction, and idolatry is 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 a little bit like that, isn't it? That I need um, to to give myself to it. I think I'm taking it in, but actually something is being set up where where something else is in control. So I I live a life that has a meaning beyond myself, that has beyond my own particular creature comforts in the way that I want to live. And it has to be a life that's rich in relationships. Um, As we close, I I have to go back to um, who is our, I know our mutual favorite teacher in our mutually favorite book, very much about, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and love your neighbor as you love yourself. Um, that very much emphasizes the importance of relationship and that's what gives meaning but we're going to explore this more in in a future in a future podcast
But uh, at this point, thank you so much, uh, Andy, for, for your time here and uh, unpacking this. What appears simple, but is actually quite a complex subject. Uh, and I think as we persevere with it, I think there's there's much richness and literally golden nuggets for life uh, that we can unearth from it. So thank you. If you've enjoyed today's conversation, you can get all the show notes for this episode from drsunil.com. And could you do us a favour? Head over to iTunes to rate the programme. This is by far the best way to get this content into the hands of those who need it most. Also, do you think about who you could pass details of the podcast on to? Don't forget to check out the blog for more great content. That's drsunil.com, helping you to make sense of life in a challenging and complex world. Until next time, goodbye for now.